0: Holiday House Books for Young Readers, Peachtree Publishing Company, and Pixel and Inc. present Amy Hest and Philip Stead, author and illustrator of Sometimes It's Nice to be Alone, in conversation with publisher Neil Porter. Hello, and welcome to The Guest Book. I'm Keith Strunk, producer of The Guest Book, and today we're excited to welcome Amy Hest. Amy has written many acclaimed children's books, including the New York Times bestseller Kiss Goodnight, and is a three-time winner of the prestigious Christopher Award. Welcome also illustrator Philip Stead, author of the Caldecott Medal-winning book, A Sick Day for Amos McGee. Philip has written, illustrated, or written and illustrated many picture books, including Every Dog in the Neighborhood, and Music for Mr. Moon, for which he wrote the text. And a warm welcome to Neil Porter, publisher of Neil Porter Books at Holiday House, who will be leading our conversation today about the book, Sometimes It's Nice to be Alone. All of you, welcome to the guest book. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Among other things, sometimes it's nice to be alone shows us that anyone can be a potential friend, and that includes horses, whales, crocodiles, and even dinosaurs. The book has two starred reviews, with Kirkus calling it a sparkling reminder that nothing is as powerful as a child's imagination, and School Library Journal calling it a celebration, shirt sure of delight, introverts everywhere. As a card-carrying introvert, I uh, I certainly agree with that sentiment. Uh, Amy, you told me that you don't consider yourself an internet, uh, an internet, and
1: <laughs> definitely not an engineer.
2: <laughs> and Phil, uh, I am definitely an introvert. Always have been. Um, sometimes I'm confused for an extrovert because I'm asked to speak. Uh, in public a lot because my wife is even more of an introvert. But but the truth is I am much happier being alone most of the time. Yeah, there you go.
0: So, Amy, this is the first book we've worked on together, but I've been an admirer of yours uh, from afar for many years. Uh, the Purple Coat was kind of a touchstone book for me when I began editing uh, books myself back in the 90s. Um but I'm really curious how did you come up with the idea for this particular book?
1: Well I I was thinking about that and um it occurs to me that I should be sitting at my desk a lot more than I am um but I take a lot of long walks in the city and I you know I find reasons not to sit at my desk and occasionally things happen when I'm sitting at my desk, but more often things happen when I'm not sitting at my desk. And the words, sometimes it's nice to be alone, popped into my head one day when I was wandering around my apartment um, and I found myself, of course, in the kitchen and I was eating cookies. And, um, And that sentence just popped into my head. Sometimes it's nice to be alone. And then I, I, thought, oh yeah, just you eating your cookies alone, um, which is exactly what I was doing in that moment, and that's I think where it all began. And of course, I had no story; I had nothing. I just liked my sentence. Usually, I don't like my sentences, but I, I kind of like that one. And I thought, oh yeah, you wrote, you have a sentence that you like. That was and then you. Treatment. Mm-hmm.
0: And then I had two sentences and three sentences and four sentences that you... Oh, a
1: long time later.
0: <laughs> a long <laughs> yes. time later. Um, did you have any idea how the book might look in your mind's eye when you Absolutely
1: it? not. I am so not a visual person. I'm, I'm I'm in it for the words. Piecing the words together is always what I like to do. And somehow coming up with something that usually isn't a story for a very long time. Um, it's just, in the rhythm, uh, this one had, you know, had to have a rhythm, a certain rhythm to it. And then I injected all kinds of things that I like to do now or as a kid. I, you know, I, I like reading, I like cookies, I like walking on the beach, I like riding my bike. Um, And so all those things and more found their way into this book.
0: And what was your response when you first saw Bill's sketches?
1: Well, my first response was to burst out laughing because I just thought this guy made this very serious text absolutely hysterically funny. And I was so grateful and so thrilled and dazzled and I think I've mentioned to you before Neil that I keep a copy of this book on my desk it's the only book on my desk Um, and I just keep looking at it over and over and over again that's something I never do I never go back and look at my own books it's too scary but this one I, I just love I just love the pictures pop that little girl pops I love her i love everything
0: she does um i i just love it love it thank you phil um phil uh just to give a bit of background to our audience i tried to count out up the number of books we've done together and i got lost but i think it's somewhere around 16 or 17
2: i think it's more than that actually i think um We're currently working on another Amy Hest book, actually, and that will be the 30th book we've made between Aaron and I. And I think I think you're responsible for well over 20 of those.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we have a a long, a long history together. And I I find it really interesting because you you uh, you wear many hats, including the one you're wearing now uh, in that. Sometimes we work on, on books where you are the author and another person is illustrating. Sometimes we work on books wh- where um, you are both the author and artist uh, of the book. And sometimes we work on books written by other people that you are illustrating. And uh, uh, it, it, any thoughts on that, on how you approach each project?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very... Each sort of hat that I wear feels very, very different. Um, I sort of accidentally became a writer. I didn't, I had no intention of becoming a writer. Um, I think most people, if they know me though, think of me first as being a writer because I wrote a sick day for Amos McGee, which was illustrated by my wife, Erin. Um, But I went to art school and I I grew up drawing pictures when I was four years old. If you asked me what I wanted to do, I would have told you I, I wanted to be an artist and by the time I was 14 or 15 years old, I wanted specifically to be an illustrator of children's books. And I really had no interest at all in, in writing for myself until um, I was in my mid-20s. And I realized that if I could also write for myself, then I would have more control over the projects I do. Um, so that's how that sort of got started. When I write for myself, um, I tend to be very tense about the entire project from start to finish it's like no fun at all to do until it's done and then suddenly it feels fun again um this book in particular was really unique for me Uh, it's only the second book I've ever illustrated that I didn't also write and I think this is the most fun I've ever had making a book it was I was never stressed out making this book
1: I really so happy oh gosh that makes (laughs) me so happy
2: I just had, I had a really clear idea pretty early on of what I wanted it to look like. Um, And it involved using some techniques that I was only sort of comfortable with, but I became comfortable with over the course of the project. Um, And I just knew I I wanted really bright color. I wanted the book to have sort of a retro feel without being self-consciously retro. And I think because I wasn't also responsible for every aspect of the book, I just got to enjoy it in a way that I I don't normally get to enjoy my projects.
0: That's very cool. Um, So along those lines, there are no animals in this text. How did you conceive uh, the idea to use animals and have toy animals become real?
2: So I would argue that while there are no animals, there's also not no animals there's actually no people either in the text. There's just this sort of disembodied you. Uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's nice if you, you can be alone eating your cookie. And really, that could be an animal. It could be a, a child. In my earliest um, book dummies, which you guys probably never even saw, I didn't even imagine that it would be one child. I thought that each uh, individual sequence, each thought that Amy had would be a, a new child. It would just be sort of like independent scenes. But then it kind of felt like, you know, the book wasn't holding together too well. And then I thought, well, what happens if there's one child and uh, the child sort of accrues friendships along the way? So one friend shows up and then another friend shows up and another friend shows up. And I imagine the the scenes becoming uh, increasingly more complex as the book went along until it was just, you know, this big party basically at the end. And that sort of worked, but it was also not very true to how I want to live my life. If if I know more than two people are going to be at a party, then that's too many people. Uh, I prefer.
1: Definitely with you on that one.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I would. I would much prefer all of my parties just have me and one other person. No
1: no parties, please. So
2: so, so that's kind of how I imagine this book ultimately is that each sequence was essentially a party with two people. Or in this case, a, a person and an animal, and that got that allowed me to sort of retain my identity, but still, I think, have the book feel um, quite joyful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Amy, you mentioned how how well you said it a little bit earlier. How funny the book is, and that wasn't necessarily your original intent
1: when you. No, my my original intent, I, I guess, if I had to have one, was that it, it's a serious business. You know, it's quiet, it's reflective, um, but Phil did not go quiet or reflective in this, and I love that. I just love the joy in this book um, that I didn't even see writing it. You know, it's funny. My mom taught me as a very little girl to enjoy my own company. She thought it was, re- it was one of the many things I learned Um was to not be dependent on someone else to have a good time. And so I, I learned at a very early age to be alone. And um, and that's a good thing. I think the balance is very important, to be able to be alone and to be able to be with someone you like or love um, as well. You have to find that balance. Uh, in life. Agreed.
0: Bill, any thoughts on that?
2: I think she summed it up beautifully.
0: Okay. Uh, It surprises many readers to find out that sometimes the author and illustrators don't always collaborate directly with each other. Can you talk a little bit about how the two of you came to work on this book and, and what kind of interaction you had?
1: One word. Neil. (laughs) <laughs> that, was, that was how we came to work on this book trust your editor that's that's what I can say because otherwise there is isn't no, I I didn't call up Phil and say hey you know I have this idea or that idea or this color in mind or that color in mind um it all comes from Neil um the collaboration I think you're the guiding force here
0: that's well, interesting because I think each book I work on presents a different set of working circumstances. Sometimes it makes sense for author and artist and editor to be in there all together working on uh, a project collectively. Other times, and this is sort of conventional wisdom that you keep the author and artist as far away as possible because mm-hmm. an artist doesn't want the author looking over uh, their shoulder um, and wants to feel free to to uh, bring their own sensibility and and vision to the book um uh, you know the last the last three and a half years have been a blur and it's actually three and a half years amy i went back to look at our original correspondence and it was in the fall of 2019 that you first sent me this book so here we are
1: uh
0: three and a half years later and that gives may give people a sense of what the process normally takes but in this particular instance, I felt like I was more of a kind of go-between between you guys. I don't think you you communicated directly with each other very much. Is that
1: not at all. Just I, I remember thanking you and being very worried about thanking you. How would you take my thank you, Phil? And I mm-hmm. you know I remember getting your email from from Neil um just to say, I love what you did. I love this. Um but that was it I think right Uh, yeah this
2: this this uh interaction was very different from what I'm used to actually it 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 is conventional that the author and the illustrator would not have a lot of interaction but uh in in my bookmaking history it's been the complete opposite uh most of the books I do are a collaboration in some way with uh, either myself or with my wife Erin um Or often with my friend, Matthew Cordell. Uh, And in the case of the books I do with Matthew, where I write and he illustrates, um, often because we know each other very well, we talk to each other, you know, a few days a week, every week, um, we tend to concoct schemes in advance of of Neil ever seeing something. (laughs) Um, And then once Neil is, I don't want to say brought on board, because ultimately he brings us on board. Uh, but once Neil is is involved in the process, then the three of us really interact as a as a team. We get on the phone together, we talk things through. Um, even though I'm an artist first, at least in my own mind, I'm an artist first. I really enjoy letting some other artist solve these problems that a book presents. It is so hard to illustrate a book, and it is so nice to let somebody else figure out how to do it sometimes, but you know, with this book, it it was strange for me because I just had this text and I had a very personal relationship with this text after the year I spent working on it. Um, but it wasn't until it was over and done with, and I had already shipped the art to New York city and had moved on to the next thing that you and I, Amy had ever even communicated with each other. So, um, but I did feel very personally connected to this one almost immediately because it really felt like something that would naturally come out of our studio. Our books tend to to be, and I mean the books that, that I make with my wife, Erin, tend to be a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit just traditional in the ways that the sentences get constructed and uh, the rhythms and the pacings and that sort of thing. And, and this this manuscript that you wrote, it didn't sound like something I would write, but it felt like something that would exist in our world. And that's why it was so easy to say yes to. Mm-hmm.
1: That's so beautiful. I tend to write... Um... I'm not hip. Well, you can see I'm. I'm just not hip or cool, and I don't write hip or cool. I think of myself as an old-fashioned writer as well. I don't think this book looks a bit old-fashioned, but it does look timeless, and and I think that's a really good word to use about a children's book. Those are the books I I hope to write always, books that don't have a date attached to them. You know, yeah.
2: or, or time frame um, of any kind. So, Aaron and I, when we when we start out making a book, we never intend to make things that look old fashioned. Um, but the things that have always inspired us are the the handmade books of the nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies, even even eighties and nineties, which mm-hmm. is a pretty big time frame. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like forty fifty years of of artwork that we're drawing on. We we tend to be less interested in books that are, are very modern books that are created digitally books that really feel of the moment and so i think because of that the books we make end up being sort of um as kurt vonnegut would say unstuck in time mm-hmm. um they don't really exist in any era which can be a good thing i think because then they feel like they maybe hopefully they feel like they've always existed instead of feeling like you know this is a book from 2023 Right, um, And in 2024, it will feel old and boring.
1: Right. I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Um, except, of course, I can't illustrate it. But, um, and have no feeling for it either. I just know if I like something or I don't like it, if it rings true or doesn't ring true. But when I'm writing, my focus is on the next word, the next comma, the pause, the rhythm, the, you know, where do you take a breath that whole that whole thing does this make sense how does it sound when I read it out loud which I do constantly um it's a lot of drama going on in this room um when I when I'm writing a book it's just talk 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 um because that's so important and the visual just isn't coming into it so I'm so glad you have that yeah
0: I just think we're all like-minded. I mean, I I, I don't have a publishing po- philosophy per se, or maybe somebody else will figure out what it is. But um, I like to do books that that feel timeless, that are not rooted in any particular period, unless of course it's a historical uh, book or a picture book biography or something like that. But um, that's something that I think has always been true of, of the books that I've worked on with Bill and Aaron and and I agree is very true of of this one uh a couple of questions about creative process for amy uh you've joked in the past that your creative process is the same for all your books three little words type read delete uh was that was that how this book worked out
1: it should be delete 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 (laughs) (laughs) because mostly what i do is delete um really i it's 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 a very long process. I'm a very slow writer, incredibly slow and very meticulous. It's the only thing in my life I'm very meticulous about, um, that every word has to be the right word um, or I'm not pleased. Um, So, yes, there's a lot of deleting. And oftentimes I don't know what my book is. I just write. The first draft is the hardest Um, and I'm I'm sure most people agree. I love revising, I love to revise because it just gets better and better and better. And then you go back to your first draft and you say, What was I thinking? Um, (laughs) But or or why did I think that was a a decent sentence? It's awful. So, anyway, delete, delete, delete. That's
0: that's your that's your.
1: And lots uh, of blocks and lots of cookies.
0: <laughs> right. So the, the manuscript that I got in November of 2019 um, had that gone through several drafts before it got to me.
1: Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. Yes. hundreds.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. This is a no-nonsense operation. <laughs> was...
0: yeah. And you're merciless with yourself.
1: Oh sure. Oh, of oh. course.
0: And then we ha- and then we have our own struggles over word choice and rhythm and stuff like that, which are are always kind of bracing and and enjoyable, at least for me. I hope they are for you. Oh
1: sure. I like to do battle with you, Neil, on, on word choices. <laughs> sometimes I'll give it to you and sometimes I won't.
0: <laughs> kind of like this this um arm wrestling contest sometimes where we get there in the end uh and for phil you have so many different mediums and techniques for your artwork what was your process with the hand printed art in this book and why did you choose this medium
2: uh so you're right i've i I work in a lot of different mediums um almost every book i do is something different or at least a variation on something that i've done before uh this one was made using printmaking techniques and specifically a technique called monoprinting uh monoprinting means um it's a style of printmaking where you can only make one of the image. There's no multiples the way there would be for like a woodblock print or an etching. But the way that I do monoprinting, this is a little bit technical, but anybody that's listening, that's interested uh, might like to know. I fix a piece of paper to my plate so that after I've made one monoprint, I can lift up the paper and then I can put more ink down on the plate and then add a second monoprint to it and a third monoprint and a fourth monoprint. So, while mono means one, what that means is there's only going to be one final image. But there, in many cases, were up to, you know, 50 to 100 individual monoprints within each illustration to make one illustration. So it's sort of strange technical process. I actually don't know anybody else that that does mono printing like this. I've sort of landed on it um, by chance. One thing that I knew right away when I, when I, started working on this book is that I wanted it to feel a little bit like the, um, limited color process books of say the 1960s. So in the 1960s and into the 1970s, when you were printing a children's book, you didn't necessarily have every single color at your disposal. You had to be limited in your choices. You might have uh, two colors and the color black say, and I wanted to experiment with that sort of. Um, thinking with these pictures so I only used let's see five colors to make this entire book and three of those colors are just the primary colors of of red yellow and blue and by adding a little bit of what's called transparent medium to these um, oil inks that I use they then become slightly translucent so that when blue overlaps with yellow now I can make green and when red overlaps with yellow now I can make orange And so I start to get a a slightly broader range just by how these colors start to interact with one another, which is exactly how illustrators and designers had to think about their books uh, half a century ago. And the question, of course, is, you know, why would you do that when you can use every color in the rainbow? And I think it's because when you're limited in what you allow yourself to use, it causes you to be very careful in the decisions you make. Um, And I'm a very careful person in general, sometimes to a fault. I think Amy can probably relate to this too the way that I write and edit my text is really similar to how I think about illustration. So it's about deleting, deleting, deleting until you've got just the essentials and just exactly what you need to make that picture, which is why there's always so much white space in the books that Aaron and I make. We're just not interested in backgrounds very much. We like whatever the image needs to be. We just want to be the the barest essential of that image.
1: I love that. It's so uncomplicated and clean.
2: It can actually be quite freeing because there's something really intimidating about showing up in the studio and having every possibility in front of you. And if you've already limited your possibilities, then it can actually allow you to be, be more creative, I feel. Yeah. It's kind of like, like working in a sonnet or something if you're writing a poem. Um, at first, it might seem quite limiting, but, but once you start filling in the form, the form actually starts to direct your creativity in an interesting way.
0: So I'm curious, my mind boggles at the notion of, of, of 50 monoprints being done to create a single image. How, how long did that process take for each image?
2: Um, well, I got faster at it. Um, it does help when you have a really limited palette because all the colors are right there waiting for you all the time. I can mix the colors at the start of the month. and they Because um, I'm using oil inks, they can just sit on my palette for a month or two months and I never have to mix them again. Uh Each picture took about probably ten days to make. I would say, some being a little bit quicker and some being more difficult. There were only a couple that really caused me to tear my hair out where I had to start over several times and the The thing is is there 's no going backwards every time you add a print um there 's no delete key for Correct. this kind of kind of art and there 's no eraser um every mark you make is is there forever and You can't even very easily cover it up with more ink. So if you do anything in that, you know, 50 stage process that you're not happy with, you either have to find a way to live with it or you have to know when to, um, you know, pull the rip cord and, and start over. So uh, Amy, the
1: hardest hardest picture to make for you.
2: What was the hardest picture to make? It's a good question. I'll tell you my favorite one to make first, because I'm looking at it right now. Um, It's the one where she's walking on, the, the little girl's walking on the beach with the alligator. So that one was really, really fun to just see happen on the plate because the alligator is green. Now this is kind of nerdy, but, you know, other artists might appreciate this. In order to make a green alligator with this technique, first I had to make a blue alligator. So the very first thing on this, on the page when I was making this illustration, was a big print of a blue alligator. And then all the yellow that makes up all the sand on the beach goes down. But all that yellow also went right on top of the alligator and turned that blue alligator into a green alligator. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this process is that when you really look at it up close, uh, you can see these colors mixing with each other in real time. So you get little bits of the original blue coming through. And it it makes the entire thing kind of come to life in a way that is really, really hard to mimic with digital materials. I mean, digital artists actually try to mimic these sort of interactions with color. Um, But there's always just something a little bit too perfect about it. And it doesn't really end up having the same life and breath, I think, um, that a real handmade piece of art can have. So that's my favorite image. Um, It was just so much fun to watch it happen on the page. The most difficult was probably the one, there's one where she rides a bicycle
1: mm-hmm.
2: and every illustrator has certain things that they loathe doing and I loathe any sort of mechanical object <laughs> and the king of, the king of all difficult mechanical objects to illustrate is a bicycle. Because oh. if you get any part of it kind of wrong, it just doesn't look like a bicycle anymore. <laughs> and so it's a really you have to be very technical and precise with it, but this technique that I'm using is not very precise. It's very imprecise. So to get say like the spokes on the the wheels to really look like spokes on a wheel while still being a, a monoprinted image was just it was a little bit of a headache.
1: Here's another question. The the girl who is she where where does she come from? She's just delicious she's just got it all um
2: but... so she doesn't really come from anywhere what i knew is early on once i decided there was going to be one human character i wanted her to be i knew i wanted it to be a girl um i spend most of my time with women and they're just more interesting uh, <laughs> i have a, a daughter a wife and a and my dog is also a girl and that's just how i
1: mine is too i what prefer it
2: that you? way <laughs> Um, But I also wanted the character to sort of be almost faceless, like she could be anybody. That's why she wears these big glasses, but you don't actually see her eyes behind the glasses. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted you to be able to sort of attach any personality that you wanted to give her to her. So you can imagine her any way you like once you've you've seen her.
1: I kind of want to hang out with her. That's how I see her. I I want to hang out with her and spend the day with her.
2: Yeah, well, unfortunately, she likes to be alone.
1: <laughs> but only sometimes. <laughs>
2: yeah, I
0: uh, I don't know. I, I, it's funny how like, characters kind of stick with you. And I, I really like that little girl, too, and want to know more about her. She seems, I don't know, um, you know, she reminds me a little of Erin. Was that intentional or is that...
2: Not intentional, but probably not inaccurate either on your part. Um, I think what makes this girl instantly likable is her blue hair, personally. I mean, one fun thing about having such a limited palette is that you ju- you have to stick to it once you've decided these are the colors I'm using. So the only options I really had were, you know, blue, yellow, and red. And blue was actually the strangest of those three choices. Right. Um, but it's the reason I think she kind of, feels like she has sort of like this internal life going on is that, that wild blue hair.
0: Neat. Uh, We're getting towards the end of our time together. So let me ask both of you, what do you hope children and their caregivers take away from reading the book? Hmm. Go ahead. Well,
2: Yeah, I'll answer first. I, I feel like growing up as an introvert and also having an introverted child uh, introverts are always having to explain themselves. An extrovert is always welcome, or at least they're always feeling welcome when they walk in the door. An introvert is often seen as being um, rude or standoffish when actually, you know, they're really not those things at all. They're just sensitive and processing things in a slightly different way. And what I really like about this text and why I wanted to do it is that it gives so much respect. Well, at least the way that I saw the book existing, because I don't know if Amy saw the book existing the same way, but I saw this as a book about introverts and a book about the rich internal life of an introvert. What's going on, you know, behind the sort of stoic facade of an, of an introvert. So, so that's why I like this book. That's why, that's one of the ways I hope it's used to help, um, children understand other children or even better adults understand children um, I think there's often a misconception that all children are some somehow extroverts that they ought to be wanting to run and play with other children and interact with with everyone they meet and that's not all children that wasn't me and, um, and so yeah so that that's I think what I hope people glean from this book if that makes any sort of sense at all it's a whole lot of sense
1: I don't think I was thinking about myself as an introvert. I was certainly a a shy and quiet little girl. It's only now that I'm an old lady that I feel more confident, I guess, to say what I think. Again, I go back to my mother and, and to what she taught me about enjoying my own company, how important it is to just be at peace with yourself. And find what it is that you like to do and embrace that. And then if a friend happens to come along, that's a great thing also. And when I wrote Friend, I, I was thinking, actually, I was thinking a lot about dogs. Um, and, and, you know, because I have a dog and I've always had a dog and I love dogs. And, and I was thinking this book might be about a child and a dog. That's
2: funny because one of my earliest versions of this book actually was this same little girl, but with a dog each time, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. the same,
2: the same dog. Yeah. And it was, you know, I could have just as easily made the book that way too, right. um, but it would have been an even quieter sort of experience exactly. than the one we've got.
1: Exactly right. Um, and the dog would have taken over, I think, in my, in my worldview and, yeah. and that's where nobody takes over. It's just, it's beautiful. Thank you, Phil, and Neil. Thank you for fixing us up, for putting us together.
0: (laughs) Thanks to both of you.
1: A matchmaker.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, So, uh, setting this book aside for a moment, what uh, what's next for each of you?
2: That's an easy one to answer here because the thing that's actively happening at the studio right now is uh, another Amy Hest book. Uh, this one being illustrated by my wife Erin, but even when Erin works on something that's you know supposedly exclusively hers, it's it's always something we work on together and, and vice versa. That's so interesting. So yeah. I'm I'm helping work on the, the book design for that one right now while Erin is working her tail off to get the illustrations done.
1: <laughs> I can't wait to see the finished illustrations. I'm so excited about that book. It's yeah. Really- it's very, very different from this one. Um, and again, it's it's more about relationships and um, and fishing. And fishing. And fishing, yeah. yes. And then a, um, a father and a son fishing. Yeah. A father and a son, big bear and little bear go fishing.
2: Do you think they're,
0: well, we shouldn't spend too much time on it, but do you think they really are father and son, Amy? Because it's, it's a little ambiguous, is it? could be older brother and younger brother.
1: Oh, not to me. It's always been a, um, father and son in my head. I don't say that. I don't say father bear, um, baby yeah. bear, or something like that. But yeah, in my head. Um, I like to write ambiguously, but, but the thought process is very specific, who I think it is. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So before we wrap up, would you each sign the guest book by leaving listeners with one last thought about your book or really anything you'd like listeners to take away from this podcast?
1: I I just have a million thank yous to all of you. That's my one last thought because I'm so happy. I'm so happy with this book.
2: Um, I guess I would just like to say thank you to everyone for reading this book because you are in a very real way, making my improbable life possible.
0: Yeah, I, I realize the weird thing about podcasts, like this one, is that we're talking about a picture book without having any visual component. So, you guys are, unless you're familiar with the book, uh, are left to your own imaginations. But uh, if you want to get a clearer picture of what we've all been talking about, please, please. Uh, um, have a look for sometimes. I uh, sometimes it's nice to be alone. Written by Amy Hest and illustrated by Phil Stead. And thank you all for listening.